Hi, I'm Samir Kaji, and welcome back to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. This week, we're joined by Jeff Morris Jr., founder and managing partner at Chapter One Ventures. Before starting Chapter One in 2019, Jeff was an active angel investor and a venture scout, investing in companies such as Lyft, Lambda School, Superhuman, Pipe, and Cameo. Jeff also brings significant operating experience to the table as he was the former VP of product at Tinder, where he spearheaded popular features like Boost and Tinder Gold. Jeff and I covered a wide array of topics, including finding your product market fit as an investor, what it's like having tier one investors like Lightspeed and Sequoia as LPs, and the ever-changing dynamic between entrepreneurs and VCs. Now let's get into the episode to hear all of that and more. This week's episode is brought to you by Anduin. Anduin's platform makes fund management simple with streamlined fund operations, digitized fund subscriptions, and real-time status updates. As many investors know, traditional paper-based subscription agreements are costly, tedious, and airprint, with up to 80% of submitted documents being incorrect or considered in poor order. This causes fund managers to be faced with a lack of visibility and an endless back and forth with investors, causing a poor onboarding experience for both the LP and the fund manager. This is where Anduin steps in as their investor onboarding workflow brings clarity and efficiency to fund subscriptions, which drastically reduce error rates and makes for happier LPs. For fund managers, the platform allows them to free up time so they can focus on what they do best, which is investing. For more information on Anduin or to arrange a demo, visit fundsub.io forward slash venture unlocked. That's fundsub.io forward slash venture unlocked. Jeff, it's good to have you on the show. Really excited to be here and thanks for the invite. I've been following you on Twitter for a long time and we've recently uh, become real life friends. So I'm excited to uh, to have the chance to spend time together. Well, you, you have quite the Twitter following. There's so many interesting nuggets that you put out there. But let's talk about your journey into being an investor and running Chapter One. You started off as in operating roles and then it became an angel investor. Walk us through the journey. Yeah, it's really been a journey. And um, I guess I was an operator working at startups in, in the Bay Area for a long time. And uh, when I started investing, I didn't have a ton of money to invest. So the best way I could I could do that was through Angelus. Um, so I wrote a couple really small checks um, in the different Angelus syndicates and was reading a lot of their memos and just starting to see what deals I was excited about and also how managers presented those deals to, to LPs. As an operator, I ended up leaving in 2015, leaving Liberia to, to move to LA and Joined Tinder as a uh, early member of their product team. Had the good fortune of being the head of revenue as we started to monetize the business, and so um, really this was like the beginning of the subscription economy, which we take for granted today. But we, I think, we shocked just the the entire industry where you know people thought of Tinder as being this hookup app, and it became a huge business. It was the top grossing app in the world. Really, we IPO'd obviously through through Match, but um, it really kind of like captivated people's attention. And so I was investing the entire time I was investing on nights and, and, and on the weekends. And there was this point where I I said, why am I investing in other people's syndicates? Like I can do that too. And that was probably in 2016 where I, I made that leap. And so I started to do more deals. The first deal I did was a company called Density, which the round was being led by Founders Fund and um, Upfront was in the round. And I think it kind of caught folks at Angelus off guard a little bit because it was kind of like, who's this new fund manager who's who's you know doing an SPV for a founders fund deal? And so um, they started to give me more 
just more education on, on the platform. And I, your mindset shifts a lot where as an angel, you're kind of passively, you know, looking at deals through your network. And then suddenly I began to, to really take this more seriously. And I was hunting, hunting for deals. It was like becoming my obsession. So nights and weekends, I was an investor. And then during the day I was an operator and graduated from that. And we, well, I know we'll talk more about the progression, but eventually became a scout for index ventures. And so that was kind of my first pool of capital that I was managing, which again was a mind, mindset shift. And then um, towards the end of my Tinder run, raise a fund. And so was kind of one of these first gen emerging managers of the the recent vintage and kind of caught, I think, the wave before obviously the rolling funds and, and the explosion of emerging managers that's happened in the past year. Um, and so it's just been fascinating to see and I'm having a lot of fun and I think this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. So that's, that's the good news. You talked about this progression. Now we do see a lot of folks and you, you mentioned rolling funds that are part-time investors, you know, have a full-time gig, but really kind of cutting their teeth as investors, right? Learning the ropes. You know, we've always thought of investing as an apprenticeship game. And in the past, what you had to do was join a, a big firm as an associate or an analyst, and you sort of like learn that way. Now there's so many different ways you can do. You, you did a lot of the syndicates. What did you learn as an angel investor? And like, at what point did you start to feel like, hey, you know, you have something interesting that you not only can provide the founders, but have an interesting point of view? How many investments did it take? And what did you learn during those first, let's say, 20, 30, 40 deals you did? Yeah, it took a very long time. And I think the learnings come from seeing companies succeed and fail. And so, and within startups, that normally takes, you know, on the failure side, it can be relatively quick, but but normally it takes like four or five years to see that cycle um, and to learn, learn your lessons and learn the hard way. And so for me, it probably took, um, it probably took four or five years. And that was why I, I'm so grateful that I actually started doing smaller checks because, uh, you know, when you lose $1,000 or $2,500 or whatever it is, you can kind of recover from that. And I think if I'd skipped steps and gone straight to to doing larger checks or managing a fund, my performance probably just wouldn't be be that great. Um, yeah, it took, a, it took a while. I think the what I learned generally was like what my product market fit is as an investor in terms of what I offer founders. And that just came from, I was repeatedly asking founders like, you know, why, why they wanted to work with me because I was trying to figure it out. And they kept saying, Hey, we, you know, we're pre product market fit. We really want a product person on our cap table. And so I really took that to heart. And I think when you're launching a fund, you need some, some hook or some entry point that makes you different in the marketplace. And so I just leaned on that as being my go-to-market for my fund. And, and it, it's, it's worked out really well. And then I guess the other lesson was just kind of learning my strike zone as an investor. Um, and so I remember when I was first looking at deals, I would look at all sorts of crazy things, whether it was bio deals or, or driverless car deals, um, uh, a lot of mobility deals. And I, I you know, quite, quite candidly, like I just don't have an edge in, in those markets. And so um, like I kind of figured out what, what I'm good at. And then that was a big thing too. And what you bring up, I think, is a really salient point that needs to be probably reinforced many times. You got to figure out what your market fit is for founders, your market fit is in terms of providing returns to your LPs. And it is unique for everybody. And I think everyone needs to figure out exactly what ring that they should play in to be the most successful. And 
I, I do think it takes some time, right? Like to learn those things and figure out like, hey, I'm not really good at these things. I'm really good at these other things. And then figure out the fit, especially in a market that's so competitive, particularly at the early stage. But you, you mentioned going from angel to leading syndicates to being a scout and then, you know, starting chapter one. As you went through that progression, I would presume that there's a lot of difference. There's some things that are the same. And then there's the things that are different. Can you maybe tell us a little bit about what mental models did you have to adjust as you went from being an angel investing in other syndicates to being a full-time VC that you are now? Yeah, I think as an angel, the um, questions you ask yourself are pretty simple. It's, you know, does this have a 10x uh, or 100x potential? And if if you believe that there's a way to return your capital um, effectively and and you know, a single, a single deal, then you just write the check. It's, it's pretty straightforward and things like check size don't matter. Uh, you're not constructing a portfolio. So it's really just, just uh, a more straightforward investment in terms of doing leading SPVs. I just have like a general fear of losing people's money. It's just like, I hate it. I've always hated it. Um, I'm like the type of person where if you, if I like borrow $10 from you, like I really want to give it back. Um, and so there was just a different pressure with um, asking other people to to trust you to 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 invest on their behalf. And so I started to probably become a bit more selective in terms of what I was doing. And I never wanted to be a syndicate lead who is just doing volume, um, because you at the end of the day you have to write the the email to to your LPs saying this company succeeded or failed, and, and more often than not they're they're going to fail. And so that was always just something that um, I took really seriously. And then, you know, being a scout actually was, I think, the best lesson for me in just managing a portfolio. And so it wasn't a huge amount. It was $500,000, but it was just a different mindset as to to kind of thinking about fund math. And um, that portfolio has done really, really well. I think it's, um, depending on what day, you wake up in terms of the crypto markets, it's like a 40x fund on the on the 500k um, capital pool. And so that was that was great, uh, just a great lesson for me. And then um, yeah, now now managing a fund, it's just a whole different set of 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 questions. And um, you know, really I think the the biggest question again comes down to to, to what your business model is. And I think I've learned so much about portfolio construction that it, I just never thought about before. And so it's it just becomes a very very different business model as you as you scale up. What do you, what do you think the toughest adjustment is? So, as I mentioned, a lot of people come to me and say, "Hey, I'm thinking about making this jump. I've had this successful track record as an angel. Maybe I've led some SPVs and taken some outside capital." But what have you found to be the toughest adjustment or the toughest thing to learn? I think the toughest thing to learn is that you have to abide by some discipline in terms of check size and and I don't stress ownership for smaller funds because I have examples where you know I've done 50k checks that are potential fund returners and are tracking that way but you really just can't be as loose and free as you were as an angel I like to say that the most fun I ever had as an investor just like went like carefree fun was when I was just an angel investor and so when when people ask me you know should I start a fun up I kind of ask them like do you really want this stress in your life. I'm still having fun, but it's, it's, you know, it's like if your friend emails you about a company they're starting and 
Andreessen Horowitz is leading and you can only get a 10K check, like as an angel, you absolutely do it. Um, but as a fund manager, you you have to say no unless your LPs, you know, let you do those smaller checks. So it's just a different and, and your relationships change a lot too. I think that's been a, a big thing. So even, you know, I've seen managers who graduate to larger funds and suddenly like they don't have the same deal flow. It's your everything changes and people look at you differently in the market. And so um, and that's changing even for smaller funds, like the proliferation of emerging managers um, and people who have ability to write angel checks makes it so our 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 like 250k checks suddenly um, have taken on a different expectation. Um, if you can raise like 10, 25k checks, do you want to take 250 from Jeff or or take it from the the angels? And so um, so yeah, you you really have to 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 work harder and you have to provide, I think, a lot more value as, as a fund manager too. So what does that actually translate to in practice for a seed fund manager? You're right in today's world that there's so many options for capital. And as a founder, you could go down really one of three paths, you know, take only traditional seed fund money uh, or institutional money, get a combination of seed funds and angels, or just go down the path of no institutional capital and a bunch of angels, which collectively could add a, a ton of value for the founder. But that also makes your job harder, right? In the sense that your service model has to continue to evolve as you're writing bigger checks. And you're not only competing with seed funds, but you're also competing with uh, traditional angels. How have you thought about graduating your own service model to adjust to this, the fact that you are writing bigger checks and now maybe competing against all these different variables? You can tell when a founder wants to to go down more like the party on angel path or so I don't I don't try and convince founders that much of the value of having a larger partner. I think the value to me is you're getting someone who's just gonna be there every single moment of the day to to be a, a, a partner, almost like a, a co-founder. And that's how I think of myself at those early stages as being the first person that you call when anything goes wrong or even when things go well. But but so if you look at like my iMessage is like at the top, the pin uh, conversations are all the deals that, that I've led. And those people, we, we just text all day long. It's, you know, I really feel like an extension of the team. When you have a bunch of angels, I'm, I'm super supportive of, of new angels. And I love, uh, I think party rounds can work, but you just have to expect that a large percentage of those, those angels will be pretty passive checks in terms of participation. And most angels have full-time jobs. They they have other other things going on, and so uh, another part of it is just the relationships that that managers spend. We spend all day just like talking to upstream firms, and so in terms of fundraising, I think it really helps to have have one partner, um, especially if you find a, a fund that has signal, um, a seed fund that has signal. I think my job increasingly, I, I, I hope to be a tastemaker for. For Series A plus funds, and um, you know, hopefully, when you take a check from Chapter One or or other folks who who are my peers, it mean, it means something in the market. That's the goal. There's a number of really important points there. The one that I want to dig into a little bit more is the concept of a signal, meaning that having a brand, you know, institutional firm on your cap table can help you with things like recruiting or customer acquisition, and certainly follow on financing. 
And in your case, you had a number of tier one investors as, L- as significant LPs in, in fund one. Was that intentional? And what are the pros and cons? I mean, obviously, the pro is, in my mind, at least, you have an open line of communication. The negative might be this uh, stigma, or at least perception that you may not be completely unbiased in terms of recommending follow-on firms. How do you manage all that? And is that something that you hear sometimes? You know, when I was fundraising initially, I didn't, it wasn't a part of of my strategy to get multi-stage funds to invest in chapter one. It really happened organically. Um, And so, you know, the way I talked to founders about fundraising, giving kind of my LP bases, I'm going to show you kind of a menu of different options. And I'm going to try and let you make the decision. I can, I can help guide you. I also know you get to know the partners at each fund and kind of what their taste is. So I'm not going to send um, you to, to some firm if, if it's not the right fit. And so I, you kind of just have that spidey sense for what people will, will be attracted to in terms of, of companies, whether it's, you know, vertical or, or founder. Um, and so that's, that's part of it. It's, it all comes down to really gaining the founder's trust and knowing that you're, you're aligned at the end of the day, if I send you to, to a fund that's not going to help you in the, in the best way possible, that hurts my returns too. And so we're entirely aligned on wanting to make sure that your business succeeds on every level. And so, yeah, I, I take that really seriously. Going back to the, the fundraise question. So you raised fund one, I think it was with 2019, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken. Did you have a focused thesis of like how you were going to raise, who you're going to raise from? And what was sort of your thought about like fund sizing at the time? Like, how did you think about it? And what did you kind of learn through the process? The reality of your first fund for most people is you just you you just are excited to have anyone write a check. At least that was how my mindset was 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 so I I, I reached initially out to my Angelus SPV and, and asked those folks to invest because I had you know five hundred plus LPs and 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 so from that I think I raised my first million dollars that way. And at the time I was still fully employed at Tinder, so I didn't know I didn't truly know if I wanted to do this full time. And and the fund size for me initially was was going to be $3 million. And so as my LP base became more institutional in terms of the funds coming in, I that kept me up at night a lot because I was, you know, thinking if I really want to want to build chapter one and this fund doesn't go well and I'm, you know, busy being an operator, this is kind of it. Like all my peers literally have full access to to how I'm doing. And if if this fund doesn't perform well, um, I'm not going to be in the industry very long. And so I ended up leaving operating to do this full time. And once I left, I kind of made the decision to raise more money because I had more time. And and I think my LPs agreed that like full time the full-time version of me was able to do a, a larger fund. Yeah, I would say I would say one lesson though that I I learned very well was you, you shouldn't have a moving target in terms of fund size. And so fund ones are or I, I talked to a lot of fund managers, like it's often a moving target because you just don't know how the market's going to respond. But in the case of, of my fund, I was deploying capital with kind of a moving target. And so my early check sizes were probably too small. Um, and so I'd highly recommend if you're a first time fund manager trying to, to raise the majority of the fund or at least have 
a good idea of where, where where you'll land before you start deploying. That said, like the early checks being smaller, I think it's a good way to get your your feet wet a little bit and, and start to to just get your brand out there and get into the market. And so I mentioned one of my 50k checks I wrote early on is um, is now valued at, at around five million dollars. So just even those small checks can make can make a big difference. It gives you a lot of flexibility when you're low friction and you can and you're still going to add the same level of value as an institutional investor. Is there anything you would have done differently? So outside of the thinking about the fund sizing and not making a moving target, just going through that process, is there anything you would have approached differently knowing what you know now? I think one thing I probably would have done differently is is just try to make the portfolio a little bit smaller. And I say that because I think servicing your your first portfolio's founders is so critical to to reputation. So I think I probably overextended myself just in terms of of size. I would also like bring on more help early on. And so I ended up, um, I'm hiring a chief of staff now. I have uh, an outsource EA, I have now an outsource CFO, and I was doing everything on my own, um, which was just a ton of work. I haven't slept that much in the, in the past couple of years. <laughs> Thank God my my wife loves me, but I, I, I've honestly like haven't done a lot socially. I've, I've probably just been a workaholic for the past two years. Um, and so definitely getting getting more help, I think is is okay. And um, there are ways to do that in a cost-effective way. Let's touch upon scale for a second. And we often associate scale with portfolio companies, not as much with venture firms. But as you know, there are so many things that you have to do in running a venture firm. And it becomes difficult to consistently add that type of value, make the right investment decisions, and actually run a firm that has good governance as a solo GP. I know you think about this a lot as a former product person. And you recently brought on a chief of staff, which a lot of us are familiar with the concept of a chief of staff. But how do you think about a chief of staff in the construct of a venture firm? And how does that ensure your ability to be as successful as possible and really add that type of consistent value you need to your uh, portfolio founders? Yeah, I think for me, um, I realized I was dropping some balls in terms of just Follow-ups with founders has been a big thing. When you're taking, you know, 20, 30 pitches a week, making sure every touch point is a really um, first-class experience for founders is is so critical. Even in when you're passing, when you're investing, it needs to be just a great experience. So for me, um, I don't know if you ever read, read or saw like the Airbnb 10-star framework. Maybe it's 11 stars, but it's basically Brian Chesky like imagining what the best experience would look like if you were going on a trip. And um, I'm kind of bringing in my chief of staff to imagine what that might look like for founders. If if we are in the service business, like how how does a founder want to be treated at every point of, uh, during every interaction really. Um, and so that's that's a big part. Like I don't want any unforced errors, right? Like I can I can control um, making sure that every founder is responded to in a, in a, in a quick way because that's that's what they deserve. Um, and so that's part of it. And then just fun operations. I've, um, I've tested and launched a ton of crazy ideas during my first fund that, that I haven't seen a lot of other, um, small funds do, which, you know, I launched an accelerator, um, out of a $10 million fund. I launched a scout program with a $10 million fund and all these things were made possible during the pandemic because everything was happening virtually. So I didn't need a ton of, of overhead, but but I definitely want to double down on 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 some of that work, and so 
the scout program would be again like an operationally intensive thing that 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 a chief of staff could do which would free me up to do what um is probably the highest value for me which is finding companies and and supporting my portfolio when you think about these elements of scale whether it be the accelerator or the scout or now the chief of staff that helps you really punch above your weight in terms of what you can do in a given day how does that play into portfolio construction you mentioned a lot of companies in in fund one and in some ways like some people say well that's actually a good thing because you have enough shots at goal and you can be a little bit more ownership insensitive from the standpoint, like if you see a great deal, you can still get in versus some of the concentrated portfolios. If you have like only 20 companies or 15 companies, it's very different. What's your take on the balance between like portfolio, the size and ownership? Yeah, it's something I debate a lot with LPs, candidly. And you know, I've looked at a ton of models. Um, I spent time with Mike Maples before lunch, the fun looking at their models and their uh, data and also looked at, I've seen USV's data, Sequoia's data, and all these things are, uh, the, the metric I think about the most is just picking, picking skill. What a lot of the data su suggests is that you have about at the seed stage, a 2% chance of finding a, uh, breakout company in the U S that would be like above, uh, in, in $8 billion exit. In, that would be for San Francisco. For for a New York company, would be above two billion. Is the data I've seen, and so if you if you have a two per, two percent picking skill, you really should have a portfolio that's pretty pretty big. And 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 um, I think my picking skill is probably probably close to that. If you just look at my performance, but my next fund, um, I expect to have more uh, more core checks, but also just just having enough balance where you have non-core positions that can kind of protect the downside of, of your fund. I also saw there was an interesting point in in this fund where I started to have a few breakouts early on in the portfolio, and it allowed me to be slightly more aggressive with the latter half of my fund, because again, I felt like the, um, the downside of the fund was relatively protected, um, which again, I don't know if that's if that's something people talk about, but there is a little bit of psychology around how your portfolio is performing in years two and three while you're deploying, um, and how that might impact your your ability to be more um, aggressive in the latter half of your of your fund. Yeah, and, and the tough thing often oftentimes is that there's such a long feedback cycle, and assessing things like picking ability are really hard, right? Because you don't know, like, was it lucky? Was it was it that you were good? And usually over time consistency of fund after fund after fund and you know you mentioned folks like sequoia and mike maples who have done a phenomenal job over an extended period of time picking great companies and so for them it sort of makes sense to go down a, a model that's maybe concentrated i think sequoia is actually a lot of companies in terms of how they think about portfolio construction but you've had exposure to these amazing people that have been LPs and probably mentors to a certain degree, whether it be a Mark Andreessen or the folks at Lightspeed or Sequoia or Bain, what kind of advice have they imparted to you in terms of what makes investors special? It's not one word of advice. It's more just seeing how they operate and how they interact with entrepreneurs, but also how they teach me. And so I had the good fortune. Mike Maples isn't an investor in my fund, but he's become a a, a friend and, and a mentor. And he, we did a session in Palo Alto in 2019, just as I started fundraising, where we spent a weekend 
in his office and he walked us through basically everything he had learned throughout the, the course of investing for 15 years or whatever it's been, 20 years. And there were just habits that I observed. One of them was that Mike still writes deal memos, really thoughtful deal memos for every single deal he invests in. And so um, I think a lot of emerging managers, especially when you're a solo GP, like it, it's hard to convince yourself to take the time to do something like that um, because things are moving so quickly. But it just showed a certain level of discipline. Um, and his reasoning for doing the memos was so he could always look back on every deal they had done and had a clear view of his decision-making framework at that point in time. Um, because you can also, you can, your judgment, you know, you can justify things in, in, in a million different ways and not remember why you made a decision. He also, he also said an interesting thing, which is when he, when he's missed deals, he always asks himself, what question could he have asked to, to, to have gone to the right answer? Yeah. A big part of what, what I've learned is, 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 is those investors are just meticulous in their, uh, in their behavior and, and, and their, their decision-making, um, follows a, a really specific path that they've, that gets them to, to, to the right answer. And, and, you know, they don't always make, make the right decisions, but they, they definitely follow a, uh, a routine. And so for me, I'm trying to, it's hard to do, and I'm not doing a perfect job, but I'm trying to, as a solo GP, create some guardrails for how I operate. So I, um, you know, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm creating more of a, a process for my own decision-making. Yeah. And having some level of guardrails around your decision-making makes a ton of sense. And on the other side, it's also important not to be too prescriptive as there's always exceptions that need to be made. And in today's world, particularly, there are things that are moving so quickly. In fact, it feels like every deal happens at warp speed and decision-making is often accelerated to a degree that makes it really difficult to do the uh, traditional diligence that we might have seen a year ago. And I, I was am curious in terms of how different people are managing through it when you know that so many founders emphasize speed. How do you think about the balance between moving fast, but yet still doing the level of diligence necessary to get you to conviction? Like I'm, I'm not uh, perfect at any of this, and I often fall into the same traps and patterns that other people do where a deal is moving fast and you you basically have like 30 minutes or an hour to make a decision because there's no way you're going to get that founder on another call. What I try and do is is kind of match my diligence often to, the, to my check size. So if I'm doing a larger check um, or co-leading or even leading a pre-seed deal, then that's when you have to spend the time to really to really do all the work because if you make a, a wrong choice with that check size, you you end up looking really just really unprofessional and and it's it's just it's a bigger, bigger hit. If there's a deal and I can get a 100 k check or 150k check and this is out of my current fund, so it's a smaller fund in a deal that an investor I, I love and respect is doing and and he's able to give me his point of view on why he's investing, I speak to the founder and it's just one of those magical conversations where you know almost right when you get on the call that you want to invest in that person, then you, you know, you, you can make exceptions and pull the trigger without doing as much diligence. Um, again, like I don't know if this is the perfect way to do things, but it's just the reality of the market and things are moving fast. So you have to to be willing to adapt and um 
I'm not, I'm not a series A fund lead. I'm not deploying five or $10 million checks. So again, I think like making smaller mistakes is okay. If you can justify why, why you, why you did something. Yeah, that makes total sense of having a different level of diligence needed for a large core check versus a small check just to build a relationship with a, with a founder. And what we do see with some of the best VCs is they have some level of flexibility in their the guardrails that they've created. And on the other hand, you don't also want to build an entire portfolio where you're going beyond your guardrails and everything's an exception. That's true. Yeah, and I think I think the trap I see early managers run into is is you look back on their portfolio and it it's just overweighted with exceptions and and you can kind of see that pattern and then I guess you just hope that unless it's it, they continue with the same fund size, you hope that they can make that transition to being um, slightly more disciplined in terms of construction. But um, yeah, it's just it's so competitive right now and everybody. Like FOMO has never been greater. It just happens, and I think the scary thing is 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 when you get like an, an email from your LPs, and it's like, why why aren't you in that deal? And you just have to say like, you know, I I have a certain way of investing, and this is my process, and we're not going to do everything and 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 kind of stick to your guns. But another thing I think I've learned just this fun is I used to beat myself up for missing missing a deal or, or I would see a deal make make the wrong decision and I just would beat myself up and I've just sort of gone over that and and it's it's very much like I, I'm kind of in the mindset I, I, I only need to make a couple really good decisions every few years to be world class at my job um, and that's that's what I truly believe let's zoom out for a second then into the capital markets which have now been on this incredible 11 year bull run. And that's really across all asset categories. It's not just venture and growth. How are you assessing the health of the environment today? I know it's really hard to prognosticate anything. And a lot of us have actually looked at the markets even going back six years ago and said, hey, we're probably at the, uh, at the peak of the market and things are going to change. And they haven't. In fact, they continue to roar on. But what's your view of the markets over the next 12 to 24 months, particularly within venture funds and companies and valuations? Yeah, I think the emerging manager trend will continue. It's just inevitable that there's so many people who see their friends starting funds and it, it's just become so easy to do that from a uh, back office perspective. So, so that's that's not going anywhere. And I think what I would expect to happen with with some folks, and it happened with Shrug recently, was a consolidation of of managers where people decide, hey, you know, doing this on my own is actually a lot a lot more painful than it would be if I found the perfect partner and we complement each other really well. So, I think maybe the most exciting part of this market will be new new funds being created with with real partnerships that come out of of you know managers deciding to to work together. There's still so much capital in in venture funds waiting to be deployed. It's hard for me to imagine the valuations in the market cooling down any, anytime soon. Um, but of course, as you mentioned, that's bound to it's bound to to go down at some point. I just don't know when that's going to be. But yeah, it's, I think I think the biggest thing um, we'll probably see is is more fund managers, and then 
a consolidation. And I really do believe in the barbell theory of venture, which I think um, Everett from Founders Fund wrote a, a great article about that recently. But it was, you know, like the Amazon versus Gucci idea where you'll have, um, you know, the Amazon of, of venture is like Andreessen Horowitz right now. And then you'll have a bunch of people who are really specialized and are offering um, something that feels that, that just feels like smaller on purpose. Um, and, and everybody in the middle is going to start to look the same and already do look the same in many ways. So, um, you know, unless you're trying to build the next, the next mega fund, I think, you know, staying smaller and more specialized to me is, is, is more competitive. Yeah. And we, we obviously have seen that area of the market. So you look at the barbell and one, on the right side of the barbell, you're not having a new Sequoia or Andreessen popping up every day, right? That just doesn't happen. On the left side, of course, you see less total capital raise, but far more funds. And one of the things that I often see, like in the, certainly in the rolling funds, the people that have raised through things like 506C is they have these great social media presences and they have influence on things like Twitter. You've built a great brand and have put on a lot of thought leadership through it. You also use it as a way to learn. What are the pros and cons of having a big brand? Yeah, I mean, for me, Twitter and social media and building my brand really wasn't intentional. It was, um, I started using Twitter in 2008 and just sort of compounded. And so I'm not waking up in the morning with a content strategy or taking it um, overly seriously, which maybe I should should at some point. But I think just being authentic to what you know and what um, what you want to put out in the world without um, without creating too much noise. Like I, I try and create one thought every day that has some value and that's all I try and do. It's one, like one tweet a day. If I do one, one good tweet a day, then that's fine. In terms of the, the having too big of an online presence, I think sometimes it can appear to be a distraction. I, I think that the positives outweigh any of those optics. People can start to think of you as being more of like a, a Twitter celebrity as opposed to a fund manager. And I get like, I want to be known as an investor um, more than someone who has an online audience. Um, like, I don't, I guess I, I don't want to be known for that. And, and uh, so I don't want that to grow too much um, is, is kind of where I've been thinking recently. Yeah. And on the other side of the coin, brand is important for any type of company. And in the early days, it's usually a function of the founder or the founding team. The other benefit that I often see in venture is when, you do put out a lot of content, you have a brand, the people that are consuming your content often feel like they know you and are familiar with you without ever having met you. And oftentimes you can get people to self-select in. Is that something that you see? Yeah, founders, when I meet founders, it's like people feel like they already know me, which is great. And hopefully that's the case because what I'm sharing is actually like the real version of me. And so you're right. If you like uh, how I think and what I'm, what I, put out in the world, um, it just creates a shortcut to, to getting to know each other. And, and so, yeah, maybe that's the best part. I just, as you said that, I, it kind of clicked. I think that's probably the best, the best part. It's the same for, for us too, in terms of the fund managers I talk to. They already know your personality, that way you think, and the ones that don't align just probably won't reach out. And so you do get, I, I think, a higher quality of introduction. And I've actually met a lot of great people, and I'm sure you have. I want to shift to our final segment, which is our heat check. I'm going to ask you three questions, fairly rapid fire. The first one being, 
now that you've been a full-time investor for a few years, what is the most counterintuitive lesson you've learned? Yeah, this might be slightly controversial, but at least early on in your in your fund, your top performing companies usually need the least help. And so you have this idea of, of like, I think a lot of investors take a, a lot of credit for for the success of, of their true breakout companies, but I've found that the companies that break out often call me the least. It's it's just true. And so um, I think where you should add value as an investor is for the companies that are you know performing in, in like the middle tier, the, the lower tier, and trying to bring them up to that level. I would say I would say I would say I've noticed that to be true in my current portfolio. And I think a lot of people that get into venture underestimate that, but that is actually very very true. And you know it's this reverse Pareto principle where you do end up spending eighty percent of your time on that the people that probably will provide about twenty percent of your returns, but how do you push that up? How do you push those you know companies up to that upper tier is a really important thing. You've mentioned this like you don't worry about missing out on these deals, but I'm sure you've missed out on some great deals over time, whether it be because of time limitation, because you saw me, you didn't for whatever reason it wasn't right. But I'm less interested in the company. I'm, I, mean, I think I'm more interested in the lesson you learned. Was there a particular investment that you missed on that today? you would say, I wouldn't miss it because I learned lesson X. For me, it comes down to preparation. Uh, and so one thing that's easy to do in the current environments to to not do work before you meet founders. And so the prepared mind idea is real. And so um, I've missed, you know, before I started my fund, I remember I was, I missed Filecoin. I was, uh, I was in a, a car driving to a wedding and I was talking to the CEO, this is in 2014 and I was on like the five and I was clearly distracted. Um, and if I had just been more prepared and had performed better in that, on that call, like I probably would have gone, gone to a different outcome. Um, and then, you know, I think other, other misses I've had have just been, as you mentioned earlier, like I'm, I'm thinking too much about price or ownership, which for a smaller fund, I would argue, just doesn't really matter that much. Um, if you're below, if you're below ten million dollars, like write the. If you find a special founder, write the one hundred k check, um, and don't think twice about it because the exit values of of public companies right now is 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 unlike anything we've ever seen in 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 the markets. And so, and that could change obviously, but um, but I've been too rigid at times about about valuation. I miss. Um, I don't mind sharing the names. I like Linktree was a good example um, where I saw that at the A before it kind of inflected. And, you know, I was just kind of like, do I really want to write this check out of like a quote unquote seed fund? Yeah, that's that's been a big part of part of this too. And ex- I think exceptions in a small fund um, should should be given under the right circumstances. It follows the theme that we've been um, kind of discussing throughout the pod. The final question I have, and you mentioned going into to Mike's office, and I'm sure you've talked to a lot of different investors and followed a lot of other investors. Is there an investor out there that particularly inspires you that you aspire toward and you really just align with? If so, who who is it and, and what exactly is it about them? Like the investor I love I love jamming with the most and talking to. He's not as well known, but um uh Greg at Fox Group is is a big um a big partner of mine and he's We've become close friends. We we met on a trip in Israel and um, just became like really fast friends. Greg Rosen, 
Um, and so he's, he's one of my peers who I just like, just love calling and love talking to. It's just energy for, for days in terms of, of people who I've learned a lot from who are later on in their careers. Uh, you know, Mike, I mentioned Mike, he was super generous with his time and really giving me that masterclass. Um, David Sachs has been unbelievable in, in terms of just being generous with inviting me to, to co-invest with him. Doug Leone has been awesome. I've known him for since I was really young and he's been, been just like, I don't talk to him very often, but whenever I talk to him, it's, uh, or get an email from him, it's just like so on point and, and, and amazing. So, but yeah, there's, I've been lucky to, to have a lot of these people spend time with all these people. And, and again, like if you're learning the, 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 the sport of venture, you have to, you have to be around, um, the quote unquote legends of the industry a little bit to, to see what excellence looks like. And so, um, I've been really lucky. Yeah. It's not a bad list to be, uh, be surrounded by. And, um, I'm sure it's, it's helped you a lot. And thankfully, you know, folks like yourself who learn can also bring those type of learnings to other people. And that's this podcast, you know, has brought a lot of, you know, of people, great information that are looking to make the same journey. So Jeff, I really appreciate you being on. Um, have always enjoyed our conversations and excited to see you grow chapter one and, and see what you do uh, in the future here. Awesome. Appreciate the time. And um, thanks for, for inviting me. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We really hope you enjoyed it. To learn more about Jeff and chapter one, be sure to go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify, where you'll find detailed notes in the show. While you're there, please leave us a rating and a review as it really helps us out and hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released.